I would say that it's such a blessing to not know what you don't know. I would actually really <laughs> embrace that. A lot of times while this beverage business has been like the hardest thing we've ever done, I'm certainly glad we didn't know that when we started because now we're far along and we're into it and we're loving it. But, you know, sometimes it's too much advice early on is not a great thing. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I am really excited because I'm talking with two founders at the same time today. So Ashley and Trey Lockerby, who are the founders of Better Booch. So welcome to the podcast, guys. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Christine. Great to be here. Yeah. Awesome. So do you want to just give us a little background on you guys specifically, and then also how you came to launch this brand? Yeah, sure. Go for it. Okay. (laughs) So background on me is that I grew up in Southern California. I have been a musician for my entire life. And prior to starting Better Booch, I was a professional musician touring as a singer. I was a backup singer for Rihanna for four years. Wow. And after a long time of being on the road, a very rigorous schedule, not the healthiest lifestyle you could probably imagine. A lot of late nights, no consistency and routine, you know, very difficult to maintain strong relationships, being on the road all the time. And so after four years of that, I really was pretty burnt out and kind of realizing what success really looked like in the music industry, which was such a blessing to be able to see that firsthand while the pressure was not on me. So I'm really, really grateful for that opportunity because of that. And it kind of made me realize that, you know, weighing out what I wanted out of my life personally. And I just didn't see myself in that career long term. So I decided to transition off the road and about four months after I stopped touring, I met Trey and he was kind of going through a similar life change at that time as well. Yeah. I'll jump in there. I guess <laughs> what you just touched on it, which was like uh, hard to maintain relationships. I, while I, I loved the road, I was becoming more and more aware of what I now call this false sense of momentum when you're a touring musician, because you'd be on the road and you'd have your friends on the road and life would be pretty good. And then when you got home, it's like your life came to this grinding halt and you realize the people you're on tour with, you don't see anymore. And the people who live in your hometown or wherever you're living, I mean, you haven't spoken to in six months or a year. And it's like, you know, it's just, it was always hard to like have a real life, you know, which became very apparent. And it also became apparent that over a long period of time, if we wanted to seek out like other things we valued, like raising a family and being there for our kids and going to weddings and going to things like that life events, that being a touring musician was not the right way to approach that kind of career lifestyle. So for us, for us, at least. So about that time, when I met Ash, we were both kind of in the same mindset, just looking to do something different. And I had kind of proposed this idea about six months into dating (laughs) that we should bottle this kombucha we were brewing and sell it at a farmer's market. And why kombucha? Well, my sister was diagnosed with breast cancer out of the blue at age 24. And there's no gene, there's no any history in a family. It was really out of the blue. 
And she went through chemo and she went through radiation and she went through all of the toxic, you know, 70 year old treatments that we have. And it wasn't working. She ended up going to Germany to get some treatments she couldn't get in the US, mostly around immunology. They introduced her to, you know, different diets, kombucha, things of that nature. And it, it made her really feel great. And she was pretty adamant that I started drinking kombucha as well, because it's actually a very good preemptive way to, you know, boost the immune, boost system, the immune system, Yeah, detox the liver. It's actually alkalizing your, yeah, for the okay. body. So that's why it became very popular in the cancer community. And so the problem was I hated kombucha. I, I went out and bought some and was like, what is this? And <laughs> But she was so adamant about the benefits and how it was making her feel. It really drove me to say, well, maybe I could brew it myself. I've heard people do that. And when I first tasted this peach tea kombucha we brewed, which is now our morning glory flavor and our top seller, probably not surprisingly, there was that light bulb moment where I was like, wow, everyone I know would drink this because it's delicious. Like I wouldn't even have to sell them on all the health benefits. Like this is actually just a great tasting product that I want to drink, you know? So that was kind of the thesis when we first started the company and just set out to really was to make our own album. We wanted to, you know, sell enough tea to make an album. <laughs> that was our first goal. And we did that. But anyway, it just kind of snowballed from there. First of all, that's the coolest story I might've ever heard. Cause you guys are two touring musicians who at the same time have this realization that that's not what you want to do anymore. And you meet each other. And then did you start a business together before you got married? Oh yeah. Oh yes. Oh wow. So Six you broke all the rules. Knowing each other. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We did it all backwards. Yeah. Six months That's into it. Awesome. Actually. I think it's actually a better way to go. If you could be business partners and then get married, it's probably better than getting married and then deciding to go into business. Cause that's always tricky. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely fully vetted each other yeah, I was <laughs> before say. we got married. Yeah. That that's was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and then you did make an album. I'm so interested in all of this. We did end up making an album. Yes. <laughs> That's so cool. So, okay, we'll come back to the album because I'm really interested <laughs> in that, but I want to hear more about the journey to getting your kombucha from something you were selling at farmer's markets to where you are now. And then also talk a little bit about the rest of the kombucha category, because, you know, Trey, when you and I talked, you enlightened me. When I tried your kombucha at Expo West, I wasn't even aware. And this is all I do. I didn't even know that I was drinking too much sugar in the other kombuchas. I had no idea. So I'm so grateful to you for, first of all, enlightening me. And now I want to know how you got from the farmer's market to where you guys are now. Yeah. So when we initially started brewing kombucha, one of the things that we were playing around with in our experimentation to try and make it the flavor more approachable was utilizing different types of tea. So, you know, I'm a singer. When I was on the road, I would drink a lot of tea. I liked all different kinds of tea. I even worked in a tea house when I was in high school in South Orange County. And so I knew how good tea could actually taste. And so we tried black tea, rooibos, ginger, green, sencha, matcha. Like we just tried all these different types of tea, varieties of black tea. And what we came up with was a kombucha that tasted really great after the fermentation process was finished. So typically, you know, if you look up a recipe for kombucha online, it will say basic black tea, sugar, water, add a SCOBY, ferment that, and then once it's done fermenting, add juice to flavor and put the cap on and put it in the fridge. And when you're adding, so the kombucha SCOBY itself is a delicate balance between yeast and bacteria. Good, mm -hmm. good, 
bacteria, probiotics. And each of those, the yeast consumes the sugar and converts that into beneficial acids and enzymes. And so when you're adding a lot of extra sugar, you're A, you're overfeeding the yeast. So you're throwing off that balance of probiotics and yeast. And you're also just, when you put it in the fridge, you're stopping, you're slowing and almost stopping the fermentation. So you're just adding a bunch of sugar and then stopping the fermentation. So what you're actually drinking, you know, could have 20, 30 grams of sugar in a bottle. Yeah. Maybe sometimes even more. And so we were like, okay, well we do like this kombucha thing. We don't love how much sugar it has. So can we make it taste good without it? And so that's how our fund, you know, like our foundation was, was built. And so when we went to the farmer's markets and we were getting to share it with people in real time, I don't know, the feedback we were getting in real time was like almost as good, I'd say, as when you show someone a song and they're like, wow, I just really love what you made, you know? And that was the same feeling. Wow. I really love what you made. It's making me feel so good. I'm drinking this every day and it's like changing my life. I mean, that is I don't think I anticipated how amazing like that would feel and just that positive feedback loop. And that gave us the energy and the drive to keep going and keep building. And so shortly after we started our first farmer's market, we got a call from Lassen's to be our, and that's a small grocery chain Mm -hmm. here in LA. I think at the time they had 13 stores and they were like, we want to carry better booch. And we were like, we made it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're going to carry it in 13 stores. We were, yeah, we like, were so hello, excited. Early retirement. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So obviously we were pretty naive. Yeah. It was a steep learning curve, but we got there. We got there. <laughs> and so, yeah, from there we were like, oh yeah. I don't think we'd set out with the anticipation that we would be able to sell it in stores. And so we were like, oh, wow, that's so amazing that people are responding this way and want to carry it in their stores. Maybe other stores would want to carry it. So we started going door to door with a cooler full of our kombucha. We hit up Republic of Pie, which was this little coffee shop down the street from where Trey lived at the time. And they were our first coffee shop to pick it up. And we just went around Los Angeles with a cooler and our story and ended up getting it into like, I don't know, 40 or 50 accounts that we were then delivering to. Out of our minivan. Out of our red minivan. (laughs) I actually, yeah, go go ahead. You go, no, you go, go. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I think what she's touching on is that we really, it's not like we were some MBA students or people who are like setting out to grow this big business and sell it. Like we just, we really got into it because we love the product and we really had fairly low aspirations for it in the beginning. But like, I remember at one point we were delivering to, you know, 50 plus accounts out of our minivan and someone was like, you should use a distributor. And we were like, what's that? You know, we were like, I think we were thinking we would just grow our own fleet of trucks, you know, like over the years, like we just didn't come from that industry at all. So we had really no way. So it was like she said, it was kind of a steep learning curve, but yeah. And we were really lucky in meeting wonderful people along the way who could advise us and, you know, help us figure out what the next step to take was. And it's really amazing. I mean, that community of Los Angeles businesses that sell at farmer's markets is a really generous community of makers who share resources and share ideas. And we even ended up meeting another founder at a farmer's market, founder of a cold brew coffee company called Secret Squirrel, who we partnered up with and ended up sharing kitchen space for a lot of years. And they used our same bottle. So we ended up being able to find other ways to work together. Like we could buy in bigger bulk by teaming up with Mm -hmm. this other company. So 
you know, we didn't do, you know, we learned quickly and relied heavily on the people that we met along the way and who were advising us. And so we got connected with distributor in LA called LA Distribution or LA Distributing. Yeah. 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 And they're great partners and have been great partners. They were our very first distributor and we've been with them ever since as we've also added others. Um, So you sort of answered my question, Trey, that I was going to ask, but when did you realize like you didn't set out to create a giant brand, right? You were just doing something that you felt really passionately about. Did you think at that point that was going to be your path for the foreseeable future was going to be all about growing this brand? Or did you think you were going to do it on the side and do other things? It slowly evolved. So like, for example, we grew out of our rented commercial kitchen space in about six months. And so we needed to find a solution and we found this other kitchen off Craigslist and it was sold to us as a commercial kitchen anyway, proved not to be the case, not permitted or anything. But, you know, I remember we got the lease and it was a two-year lease and that was like a big moment. We were like, okay, two years. Wow. That's kind of a big commitment. Are we really doing this? You know, and we've had a couple of those forks in the road moments where we kind of come to this crossroad and say, all right, are we doing this or not? You know, and that just kind of happened over time. It would just, we'd come up against those and make that decision and kept saying yes. And then would go from there. So we signed up for two years and then we, that's when we really committed. And then, you know, again, two years later, needed a bigger facility, signed up for another, I think three years on somewhere else. And, you know, so it just kind of kept going and kept growing. And there was at one point where it became clear that, you know, while we were just doing farmer's markets in the beginning, there obviously came that moment where we're like, all right, this is a full-time job. We need to really commit and go all in on this. And we were kind of happy to, it's been going well. Yeah. So where are you guys now? I mean, this amazing story and really cool that you didn't even think that was how it was going to go. I love that. Cause I think most people, when they start a brand, they may not, I mean, I've talked to a lot of people who come from different industries and don't really know the food and beverage business that still are successful, but they sort of know at the beginning that that's what they want to do. And it sounds like you guys sort of found your way there. So that's cool. And so where are you now as a brand and what are your hopes and dreams over the next three years? I think we're sold in all nearly 50 states in the US and maybe not Alaska, but we're getting up there. We just in the last month launched at Target and we launched at Costco and we're nationwide in Sprouts and we're launching in 240 Hy-Vee stores next month. We're in a couple of Whole Foods regions and we're in about a thousand Walmarts. So we've got quite a bit of distribution and we've kind of definitely gone from a regional brand to more of a national brand in the last year. Yeah. What are some of the bigger challenges you guys have faced along the way and are facing going forward? Oh, what aren't the challenges? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Being a business owner, especially through a pandemic, is exceedingly stressful. But, you know, we at times, as Trey mentioned before, you know, we have come up against crossroads like obstacles where we're like, okay, we either go out of business or we try to figure a way around this obstacle. And each time we've chosen to get resourceful, get creative and try and figure out a way around. So those obstacles have ranged from supply chain shortages that we and a lot of other businesses are seeing right now for the past two years. And supply chain shortages, like, I don't know, it sounds kind of abstract to someone who doesn't work in manufacturing, but it is critical to your business because if you have orders, especially your best customers, and you can't fill those orders, you start to then lose shelf space. You know, you upset the buyers. You don't want to upset the buyers because they hold the keys to your business, really. So that can be really challenging. Capacity was always an issue. Cash is always an issue. It takes 
a considerable amount of money to scale a beverage business. And yes. I don't think we understood that fully. And we were slow to raise outside capital. We kind of heard horror stories of yeah. people taking on VC money, especially early on. So we actually bootstrapped the first seven years of the business. And when you're manufacturing yourself, I mean, that meant we were hand labeling bottles for years. We were filling bottles with a picnic tap out of a keg for years. We were, you know, doing everything by hand for years because we just couldn't afford equipment. So, yeah. And we really took every staircase step to grow for a long time. And about three years ago, once we really got the opportunities to start going more nationwide, we ended up taking outside capital. We actually only had a great experience with that so far. Thank God. We've had amazing um, partners. We've had great partners, but I know that's not always the case. In fact, yeah, we got to see kind of firsthand with that coffee company that they went bigger sooner, took outside capital and it, and it didn't pay out the way I think they hoped. And so we kind of learned from that and we were slower to take outside money. So in a way, we kind of launched the same time as a lot of bigger brands, you know, probably today in the kombucha space, but they got a little bit more distribution earlier because they were funded earlier. But we think it's a tortoise and hare kind of race because we spent those years really dialing our product. And I think now the product it's just growing so organically that when we do get on the shelf and these opportunities, we're typically the fastest selling kombucha on that shelf. And so that's been really cool to see. Mm -hmm. That is cool. And do you think it's because of the fact that you have lower sugar and your higher quality? Like, what do you think it's about? Like they built the category for you, which is awesome, right? Because building that category at the beginning was really challenging, as you know, because your experience wasn't good with kombucha at first. Mm -hmm. And so that's a hard thing to get people to adopt, but I think it's awesome that someone else actually did that work for you. And now it's you're, amazing. yeah, you're selling now because talk about why you think you guys are moving faster. Yeah. I wouldn't say, you know, faster now, I wouldn't say moving faster than those other players. Certainly yeah. they're a lot bigger than us, but moving faster off the shelf. Now I see what you're saying. Moving faster yes. off the shelf yes. philosophy. Yep. Yeah. So I think it's a couple of different things. One, I think our branding is very approachable and friendly. I think it's, you know, we work really hard to position ourselves as an approachable, inviting, you know, positioning and messaging. Yep. And I think the can with the billboard effect that you get with that color block is really, it's eye-catching on shelf. So yeah. number one is like people have to, their eyes have to be drawn to it. Yes. And then I think the reason it continues to sell is because people pick it up and they try it. And they really love it. And then they look further and they're like, oh, there's, wow, this has a lot less sugar than maybe some of the other brands. Oh, interesting flavors. Like that's when you get to the, after they've tried it, after they're like, oh, wow, this is really good. Then they turn the can around and they look deeper at the ingredients and everything checks out on each step of the way. And so, you know, I think quality is something that you cannot replicate on the cheap. Yeah, <laughs> and right. I think so many bigger brands with pressure from their financial partners have been forced to compromise on quality yeah. and especially at scale, you know, like you get Coca-Cola involved and they're like, no, we just care about the bottom line. Right. You know, right. you can right. have Pepsi involved and like, they just care about the bottom line and they're a huge company and they didn't get to be a huge company by like not caring about the bottom line. So it's just the way that system works. And so I think by default, a lot of those brands as they have scaled, have started to compromise on quality and cut corners. And I think you can really taste that difference. And you can certainly feel that difference in your own body. And I think it's harder to quantify that, you know, but I think people can feel it. So I'm curious about your marketing then. Is your goal more about generating trial because you know that's going to lead to repeat? Or is it about educating and making sure that consumers understand what's better about 
better booch or do you, so where do you start or is it both? Yeah, it's both. I mean, it depends on who we're talking to, right? I think initially, if it's a new region that we've never been in before, we definitely try to drive as much trial as possible because we know that once they taste it, we're going to pique their interest. And then we can start the educational process. But the first step is always just getting somebody to try it. And we're seeing people try our kombucha and have a positive reaction. You know, even people who thought like Trey thought they didn't like kombucha in the past. And so we see an opportunity to bring even like younger, newer drinkers into the category, or maybe like people who initially tried it once five or 10 years ago and thought it wasn't for them and are now maybe more interested in their health and their gut health specifically. And we're saying, here's an option that is really delicious and can make you feel amazing. It's high quality and you don't have to suffer through it. Yeah, <laughs> you can actually enjoy the can. Yeah. One thing I hear all the time is, oh, I don't drink kombucha, but I drink better booch. And that's an interesting distinction. And it's important mm-hmm. to note there's a slight, you know, that just kind of speaks to what Ash was talking to earlier about the process, because there's so many different ways to produce kombucha. And I think we don't ever get into that side of the educational piece, but it's important to know that we believe better booch is the most authentic traditional way to brew kombucha, mainly because kombucha was meant to be a fermented tea, not really a fermented juice, which a lot of brands have become to be. And we produce it's all raw, live, all the probiotics are naturally existing. So it's much different than a lot of ways that other brands, you know, make their kombucha. Can you talk about the name a little bit? Because that has to be helping you guys. I mean, it's so simple, but when you think about reading it, you automatically are putting yourselves at a place where the other people can't be like, you're just by saying better. So how is that working for you? I mean, it seems so simple, but you must be so happy that you did it. Well, I mean, I love an alliteration. So first of all, better booch, it's just really fun to say. And one of the things that we say is fun to say, fun to drink. Yeah. You know, and it's funny because we used to do farmer's markets and we would have our sign, you know, in front of our little setup and we would see people walking by and like looking at us and being like, looking at the sign and mouthing, mouthing better (laughs) booch. And we were like, yeah, it is better. Come on, try, you know? So yeah, I don't know. Well, I'd say that we were calling it Booch very early on. And we found this interesting thing where at the time when we started, people either knew what kombucha was and most of them didn't like it mm-hmm. or they didn't know what kombucha was at all. So we didn't really see, we saw kind of an opportunity with Booch. We were like, oh, maybe it's its own. Yeah. And we can kind of claim that. And, you know, so we wanted to just put it in the name why we were doing it and making, because it was better. There was a moment where it had kombucha tea on the label, you know, trying to highlight that, but then people thought that was different than just kombucha. And so we, you know, there's been an interesting journey of like people just wrapping their heads around exactly what this drink is. So, but yeah, we still think booch is really caught on as a colloquial term for kombucha. And, you know, we were kind of at the forefront of that, which we love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, I think it's such a great name and it has just has so many things loaded into it already. Like you said, it is fun, but also it's telling you something makes you different. So what are you guys hoping for? Like, what's your plan for the next two years? What do you wish for in the next five years? Yeah. I mean, we want to continue to get our kombucha to as many people as possible. We're really deepening and broadening our distribution. We are developing, we have some really fun new projects coming down the pipeline, like a new product line that we're pitching right now. And we're hoping to launch early next year. And 
you know, we want to make sure that, I mean, our goal would be to be ubiquitous for people in every state to know what Better Booch is, to choose Better Booch instead of maybe one of their sugary Cokes or I shouldn't say Coke, maybe their sugary sodas or, you know, other beverage options. And yeah. I mean, our whole mission is to bring health and wellness to a broader audience and make it very approachable and affordable. So yeah. most retail stores, you'll find that we're about two ninety nine, dollars where other kombuchas are usually $3.99, sometimes yep. higher. Yeah. Um, that's on purpose. I mean, that's because it's aligned with our mission of we really want it to be approachable and affordable for everybody, even though it's a premium product. And that helps trade a soda drinker up. Yes. And it helps trade over maybe someone who's already drinking another brand to at least drive the trial. And, you know, it's not an intimidating price point. So that's been part of our strategy is to just raise more awareness. And as Tashi's point, that's kind of top of funnel. And then we kind of go from there. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I mean, it's amazing that you have that price point because it is an expensive drink. I'm surprised, to be honest with you, because you're talking about higher quality ingredients, a much more rigorous process of making the kombucha. You're not taking any shortcuts. So how are you guys managing that? Well, number one, we manufacture ourselves. A lot of other brands do a co-packing, co-man operation, meaning they don't make the product. They just, somebody else makes it and then they buy it from that person and then they sell it and market it and distribute it. So that's the way a lot of beverages are made and kombucha is no exception to that. So we make everything in-house. That's probably the main reason. The second reason is that we're in a can. We're in a can. And cans are a lot less expensive than glass. And there's just so many reasons that cans made sense for us. And cans are really approachable. The adoption of cans by consumers is skyrocketing because they're just so convenient. They're mobile, you know, they can be recycled curbside in every city in the country. They're infinitely recyclable. They can be taken places where you can't take a glass bottle, like the beach, yeah. the park, the pool, yeah. all those use occasions when you want to have a, a fizzy, yummy beverage, but you can't take your glass. So it just made sense on many levels. And then the obvious benefit also for the consumer is that we are able to achieve a lower price point because of the aluminum can. That's great. I think that's amazing. And what are you guys doing from a, like when you get distribution, you've got a good amount of distribution now. How are you guys supporting all that distribution? Because I know that's one of the challenges for a lot of brands. I mean, you guys have been around for a while. I wouldn't call you an early stage brand at this point, but getting distribution and being able to support it is so important because of obviously getting discontinued because you didn't support it is much worse than not getting distribution. So how do you guys handle that? I'm going to just call out good packaging one more time, because I think this is something that is probably scary for new brands to invest in, like a proper design agency to design wonderful packaging for you is going to pay dividends And, you know, that price point might be a scary one to wrap your head around in the beginning, but it will absolutely pay off. I mean, and it has for us. So good packaging, number one, because it does work that we can't buy like catching eyes and whatever. So, and then we have a really wonderful sales team and a great network of brokers that they've put together who work closely with the stores to come up to develop a plan for promotion at store level. You know, we have good merchandising partners and good distributing partners and we utilize them. We really lean on our partners to help us distribute like point of sale materials and just things that further draw the eye on shelf. 
to drive trial. And then outside of that, outside of sort of like the retail sales world, we're really active on social media. We are really into community building and we respond to everyone who comments or messages us. And it's a lot. <laughs> this yeah. Yes. Are so you guys doing that? You guys are doing it yourselves? She does. I do a lot of it. I also a have a really, and I also have a really great marketing team on my side who is amazing and helpful. And yeah, and it's definitely a, a team effort for sure. And yeah. we also like, we love finding creative partnerships too. So like if we're going into a new region, say that we don't have a pretty solid, you know, we're still new distribution footprint wise. We love to like find a creative partnership with a brand in that area who might want to do more in Southern California. So say, you know, we just went into Florida with Target stores, you know, we love partnering with like a brand that's super strong in Florida that maybe wants more brand awareness in Southern California. And so we can kind of swap and collaborate. Yeah. Just like when we did way back in the day at the farmer's market, like finding creative partnerships with other brands has been integral to our growth and our continued growth. I think that's cool. And I think that's relatively unique to the natural products community. I think the big CPG brands, there's no collaborating or partnering going on. And that's one of the things I just love about the space that people are so willing to help each other. And I mean, you guys came into this not knowing anything and you had to find people who were willing to talk to you, give you advice. And I think there's just no shortage of that in this community, which I think is fantastic. It sounds like you're experiencing that as well. 100%. Unless you're talking about Mountain Dew flavored Doritos or something like that. <laughs> yes. yes. I mean, I'm intrigued. About that. <laughs> yes. Well, those brands, I wouldn't call them natural, <laughs> the natural products industry. So you guys have such a unique story and relationship and there must be challenges that, I mean, it's challenging to be a founder and then to be a founder and be partners that are, and you're both completely devoted to the business and you're married. That must be challenging. So what do you guys do when you're just like, no, we can't do this anymore, or I don't want to do this today. How do you get yourselves back to this is worth it? You know, when you get to those places, you said you had all those forks in the road where you had to decide, are we going to keep going? Are we going to wrap it up? How do you keep going? I would say that we rarely have that feeling on the same day. Yeah. I have those days, but then Ash is really there to be like my support and then vice versa. So so it's rare that we're both in that place and that headspace, which has been good, but we do have like, you know, boundaries in place. We don't talk business after 7 PM anymore. You know, we try to have actual business day meetings, you know, so we're not at dinner on a date talking about business and things like that. It must be hard. It is. And it took a while to kind of find what those boundaries are and what works for us. It's different for everybody, but we found it to be, you know, just structuring. It just takes a little bit more planning, a little bit more mm-hmm. thought. Yeah, we've really turned into a very well-organized company. And that means that everyone is pretty clear on their roles, including Trey and I. And our team members were about 32 full-time employees at Amazing. the moment. Um, with fantastic. A of consultants. And so, Yeah. I think organization, I just can't say enough about it. And I think it's another sort of easy thing for a lot of people to wave away, especially creative types. Yes. But it is, um, you are, you both are. Yeah. So that's amazing. Yeah. It's been really hard. (laughs) We got it done. And we also have two small kids. We have a four-year-old and a one-year-old, almost one. So as life gets more full with other things, the structure is just so important. It's the only, you know, it's like we are almost religious about it. It's the like you, you need structure to have freedom kind of yeah. idea. 
which yeah. is yeah. yeah. And I would say it's really important to partner with someone who has different skill set than you do. So if you're a starting founder, I would really look for that. Not don't just hire your friend because it, you know it's your buddy. Like make sure that they really bring something different to the table because that happens to be, I think, the saving grace for us is that Ash is covering all these things on marketing and all this stuff that I would have no clue how to do. And then I do a lot of like finance and operation type stuff that she doesn't want to do. So it like really, <laughs> it really, I think balances out. Yeah. Wow. You guys are my heroes. You guys are the best. I, <laughs> I mean, it sounds like there's just so many things that could have gone wrong and you have just navigated all of it gracefully. And I love that. Before we wrap up advice for people who are at the earlier stages than you are and are just like, do I do it? Should I keep going? I don't know what I don't know. Like, what would you tell them? I would say that it's such a blessing to not know what you don't know. I would actually really <laughs> embrace that. A lot of times while this beverage business has been like the hardest thing we've ever done, I'm certainly glad we didn't know that when we started because now we're far along and we're into it and we're loving it. But you know, sometimes it's too much advice early on is not a great thing. I would just say, just start today. And then you, know, you won't know how exactly it's going to unfold, but just like put one foot in front of the other. And I would also just really, really highlight this point it has to be something you're actually passionate about. If you're just starting something because you're like, oh, I think this would sell a lot and make me a lot of money, you won't make it. Mm-hmm. And it's not like the product won't sell and do the things you want it, but on the days that when it gets really hard, you just won't have that inner drive to like actually get out of bed and go do it. Like you won't be there at 3 a.m. loading semi trucks on a forklift. You know what I mean? Like there's things that just you find yourself doing that you're like, you know, even just mopping the floor in the early days, you know, like we took so much pride in that. So if you're in it for the money, it won't work in my opinion. I would say, well, I definitely agree with Trey on just put one foot in front of the other. Like as long as you can see the next step, you can go there and then try to find a mentor. I think that that is maybe underrated, like really try to find a mentor who's in your space, who you trust and who you can bounce ideas off of and who can really like be honest with you and help guide you in the right direction and connect you with people who can answer questions that maybe they can't. I think mentorship is really, really powerful and can like really help you accelerate your growth. Did you guys do that? Yes. Mm -hmm. I I mean, I I have an executive coach and peer group now. She's got a CPG. She has two or three CPG peer groups at this point. And then we have a board member who's highly experienced and he's our third board member and he's like our biggest champion and so knowledgeable. So, and I mean, what about like early on, you know, like Hayden and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. It's always great to find other CEOs or other founders who are further along than you are. Yeah, And they kind of see around in the next corner coming for you. And then it's also just good to have that reinforcing like idea that, oh, it is possible, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like yeah. this person's doing it. So that can, you know. Yeah, that's huge. Like evidence that it is successful in yeah. someone that you admire and trust and who yeah. you have a dialogue with. That is really powerful. I'm sure. I mean, I feel that way. And I think there are a lot of people who have that philosophy. If you see someone else do it, you at least know that it's, and then every little success that you have is just a piece of evidence that it can happen. And I think you have to really hold those because there's also lots of times when you get the opposite feeling and you can't look (laughs) at those things. Do you guys mentor? We do mentor. I'm actually advising on a company right now, a new company called Food Made, and they're based in LA. And Yeah, we definitely love to do that. Yeah, I would say just on that point, 
one thing that I think the light bulb for us to like seek that out was we were kind of far along and I've had brands approach me to help them or advise them. And you see where they are and you have this, I mean, for me, it's like, oh, I could like 10 X your business, like overnight. Like I just, I, you know, I had that like moment. I'm like, oh, I could literally. So then I started thinking, oh, who is that for us? You know, like, mm-hmm. like who, yeah. was there someone there who could, who could mm-hmm. do the same, who's further along. So, and then the peer groups are so important, I think, because it's very easy to be like, oh, why is this happening to me and my business? Why is it so hard? Why are all these things happening? Then you talk to other people and you're like, oh, it's happening. You're going through the exact same challenges, <laughs> you know, like, oh, no matter the industry. I mean, everyone kind of goes through the same challenges and that can be really reassuring. Mm-hmm. I think that's great advice. Anything else you guys want to leave us with before we wrap up? This has been a great interview. I love it. I love your story. It's so much fun and I'm so happy for you. Oh, thank you. Well, visit betterbooch.com for more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we do have a subscription with free delivery straight to your door and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank All right. You, Christy. Thanks, Christine. Yeah, guys, that was great. You guys are amazing. So much fun. Really fun. Oh my gosh. Thanks thank for you. having us. Yeah, this was oh, a great. Yeah. Party. I'm so happy to have you. And I'm bummed that you're not going to be in New York for fancy food, but hopefully we'll connect at some point. And I know you guys have great people that you're working with, but if you ever need any strategy work or branding talk, I'm always happy to just jump on a call and talk about anything that you need as you go to your next round of capital raising or whatever. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Can you email us your address too, by the way? Yeah, I will. I will. And I was going to ask you one other question, Trey, but I can't. Oh, I want to ask you guys about your album. Oh, yeah. So what what kind of music is it? And where is it? It's folk Americana. And yeah, it's on Spotify. Spotify. So we came up with this band name called Sometimes We Sing Together because we have so many other (laughs) activities that it happens very rarely. So the album is under the I'm going to look for it and I'm going to download <laughs> it. Do you still do it or no? Are you, is that still part of what you guys want to do or are you sort of done? I think music will always be part of something that we want to do. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, music is such a release and such an outlet that it'll just always be part of our lives for sure. Awesome. Well, yeah. that's really cool. Well, thanks for sharing your story. I really enjoyed it. And I'm sure that everyone who's listening will also enjoy it. And I'll, I'll send you guys a note and maybe we can stay connected as we go through the next couple of months. We would love that. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Have okay. a great nice day. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.